Well, good morning. Is everybody warm? Everybody chilly out here? Okay. Well, we're glad you're here. If you're in Kidmo, you can head on out. And if you're a guest and you have a second through fifth grader, Kidmo is an environment for them to have their own teaching games, small groups, lots of fun stuff for them, and then you can pick them up when we're done. Uh, it's good for you to be here, I hope. It's good for me to see you here. It's good for me to be here. As you probably walked out today, you thought, hmm, do I go ahead and go out or do I just go back to bed? Probably somebody in this room thought that. Uh, can I get an amen? Yeah, a couple of you are willing to say that, but some of you thought it and you won't admit it. But I am glad that you're here. And today we are, we are it's an exciting day to be at Journey. I want you to know that because we're headed into chaos. It's so much fun. And don't you love chaos? Some of you do, some of you don't, but we are headed into Genesis chapter 3. Before we do that, uh, I want to let you know that if you're in our children's ministry on February 2nd, Sunday, February 2nd, we're having a breakfast uh, that morning to talk about what's coming up in 2020. If you are interested, some of you have said, I'm interested in getting involved in serving. Um, If you're interested in being involved in serving, then Uh, It's a great time for you to plug in and to hear what's going on there and to have breakfast. And then I'm looking for a couple of people to help me. We're going to provide provide child care for our child care providers. So if you're already going to be at the breakfast, I don't want you to volunteer. But if you're not and you would like to hang out with me and some um, very well-behaved children for about an hour and a half, right? That's the only way you get people. Because if we're, Anyways, um, they'll be very well behaved. I'm sure they will, but we'll feed them as well. Um, if you'd like to help me with that, then I would love to talk to you or you can talk to Natalia. We're just trying to get two or three people um, that will help during that breakfast. All right, I want to open with a word of prayer and then we are going to dive in. Father, God, I thank you for your word. I thank you that your word brings us not only life, but we can understand your work in this world and in our lives. Today, as we dive into what may be the most difficult subject in all of Scripture, Father, I pray that you would help us to stay true to what you have intended. Help us to see what you want us to see. Help us to take away from this what we should take away for our own lives today. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So today we're going to be in Genesis chapter 3. If this is your first time with us through Genesis, uh, we are having an interactive series in which you have the opportunity to ask questions. You can stop me at any time. And if you want to make a statement, you can do that. I'd ask that you would raise your hand. Um, and so I can call on you. Uh, if I don't see you, wave it quickly and back and forth. And everyone around you will hopefully do the same to get my attention. Um, there'll be some times I'll ask you to do something and then other times that you'll be able to engage however you would like. Uh, we're going only <laughs> through this series through the first 11 chapters of Genesis. We are not going through all of Genesis. The first 11 chapters are focused on a period of creation leading up to the beginning of God's uncreation and then God's move again to recreate. It is a section of Genesis that is really separate from the rest. We attribute the Pentateuch which are the first five books of the Old Testament to Moses. We have evidence in Scripture that Moses wrote at least part of the Pentateuch. He cannot have written all of it because it talks about his death and things that happened after his death. And while Moses was a pretty talented guy, he was not that talented. So we know that he wrote some of it. He may have written most of it. We know he didn't write all of it, which draws some question into who wrote the first 11 chapters 
the second or the rest of the book after verse or chapter eleven, uh, it focuses primarily on the patriarchs. It talks about Abram's, who becomes Abraham's call, and then the beginning of the nation of Israel moving out. Uh, but the first eleven chapters really focuses on kind of that you know prehistory, that stuff that happened before the flood. Now, our purpose in this is not that we read this as a history or a science book. Uh, I don't have a problem if everything happened exactly the way that Genesis 1 through 11 says. I also don't have a problem if it didn't. That doesn't make me question whether God is real, God is sovereign, or God is capable. That doesn't make me question that. Uh, I am one who does not believe that there is any conflict between faith and science. Uh, I'm a believer that we think we know a whole lot more about science than we actually do. And over time, we begin to learn new things and realize, hey, we got things wrong. Um, If God chooses to reveal things to us in that way, then great. If he chooses to reveal things through a a process of experimentation, then fantastic. God can pull back that curtain and show us how he has done things. That doesn't mean that God didn't do them. So our purpose is not to go through this and read this as if all of this happened exactly the way everything happened. If you believe that, that creation happened in six 24-hour periods, it very well could have. If you believe that it happened longer than six 24-hour periods, it very well could have. What we are trying to pull from this is to recognize that this was written to help a group of people after the fact begin to understand their faith, and it was spoken somehow to them, we're not exactly sure through who, about the origins of their faith. As we look through Genesis chapter 1, what we find is a very organized uh, description of creation, and there is one character in Genesis chapter 1, and that is God himself. We don't really see the, the entrance of us doing anything in chapter 1 outside of, at some point, we are created. And so as we look through Genesis 1, what we find is somewhat the nature of God and what God is doing, his work in us, his intention for us, and what We look to him as sovereign and as creator. We understand God did these things without us, didn't need us. We are a part of that creation, which puts him in sovereignty over us. We see that in Genesis chapter 1. As you read through Genesis chapter 2, you can even, if you're an observant reader, recognize at some places, Genesis chapter 2 appears to be a little different than Genesis chapter 1. And there are some that believe Genesis chapter 1 was written by someone other than whoever wrote Genesis chapter 2. Again, if that happened, it doesn't really bother me because the message is the same. So as we go through in Genesis chapter 2, what we begin to see, and we talked about this last week, is this incredible reality. And I hope you did. I, I gave you some homework. I hope you did it. It's incredible reality that you are made in God's image. And we walk through the scriptures to recognize that, (coughs) excuse me, did not change once sin entered the world. Even those who do not accept Christ as their Savior are still made in God's image. It's one of the reasons that we love others. We, We look more deeply into the lives of others. We try to understand others. We recognize every person, even that person that we question why God even allows them to exist are made in God's image. But not only do we see that in others, we should come to a place where we see that in ourselves. And we recognize, and this was the challenge I had for you, was to just meditate on the reality that God sees more in you than you see in yourself. 
And if God sees more in you than you see in yourself, then what does that mean that God wants to do through your life? We limit ourselves so much because we all know our failings more than anyone else knows them. And at times we believe that God can't use us, but God can. But we see that we are made in his image. Not only do we begin to see this in chapter 2, but we also begin to see that God has created us to join him in his work. We have a place. We have a reason for existing. He put us there to work the garden, to keep the garden. He put us there to name the animals. And that's where we see the introduction to Eve as Eve comes on the scene because after Adam goes through all of creation and he names all the animals, a suitor, suitable helper was not found for him. And so he fell asleep and God fashioned Eve through Adam. And before you jump into well, what does that mean for the relationship between men and women, we understand that the word Adam is a plural Hebrew word meaning humanity not just one man. We, together, men and women, represent the image of God and his partnership with us, or our partnership with him, and this incredible creation of which he has created. Now, you may wholeheartedly agree with everything I've just said, and you may disagree on some parts with me on what I just said, and I'm okay with that, because there are a whole lot of things I don't fully understand about Scripture, all right? So those of you who are our guests today, you may have chosen poorly, in your choice of church today. But I am okay admitting that. And there are many things I'm going to stand in front of God and say, God, I just don't understand this. And I sure hope that I understand it then. And as we also mentioned, I believe two weeks ago, even when we go back to the book of Revelation and we look at John's vision, if heaven looks exactly the way John describes it, fantastic. And if it doesn't look exactly the way John describes it, that, doesn't, that won't surprise me. If we take somebody from the 1800s and we bring them to Chuck E. Cheese and tell them to go back to their friends and have them explain the experience that they just had, I imagine it will not be completely accurate, right? Just as when John experienced heaven, it is very possible that John did not get it all completely right because in an overwhelming reality that is so far beyond what we can comprehend, he did the best he could. So I don't have a problem with that. It doesn't shake my reality of who God is, who Jesus is, or my need for him. And so we can disagree on some of these things. But what I want to share with you today is probably one of the harder messages of this series because I'm going to try to address with you the question of why did God put the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the Garden of Eden? Wouldn't it have been so much better if that had been left out? So in order to do that, I've got to set you up a little bit. I am going to ask you in a few minutes to talk amongst yourselves, to come up with some reasons why you think God put it there. And then I'm going to talk about why I think God put it there. And maybe we are on the same page already. As we go through and we look at this partnership, this partnership is so interesting because God created and we manage. God created the dirt. God created the plants, the vegetation, and the trees, and yet we cultivate God created the animals, and yet we name them, and we interact with them, and we, we care for them. And there's this relationship that God intended from the beginning, and that we would be in partnership together. And this pattern that we're, you're going to hear us talk through the next few weeks is this pattern of creation, uncreation, and recreation. 
But what we are focused on today in Genesis chapter 3 is where we move from the reality of creation to chaos. Because in every act of God's uncreation, it is preceded by an act of chaos in which God attempts to bring order back into the creation in which he gave it. Because if you remember, God hovered over the deep. And in that chaos, he brought order. And yet what we find throughout the history of humanity is we just see ourselves bringing chaos back repeatedly, don't we? We don't even have to have the Bible to recognize that about ourselves. I mean, CNN and Fox and all our news stations help keep us abreast of the chaos in the world today. And even if we didn't have those, if we were honest looking in the mirror, we recognize chaos is a regular part of our lives. Amen? Well, there was an origin to this chaos. And as we enter into this, I hope that you will open your hearts to hear what God has to say. And it may be that you leave with a completely different message today than what I have prepared for you. In all honesty, I really have two. I'm going to try to get through both of them today. We may not. And if we don't, I'm okay with that. But I've got more things I want to talk about next week. So if we can get through this today, we are going to do that. Let's begin in our study of Genesis chapter 3, as we regularly do somewhere else in Scripture. (laughs) Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2, verse 8 says, The Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, this is where you have to begin your understanding of why is the tree here, and, and that is that we attribute to the tree as the villain of the story. Or the serpent. It's interchangeable. Maybe sometimes even God for putting this tree here. But what we recognize as we read through this excuse me, initial creation account is that everything that God had created was what? Good. Everything that God had created was good, including the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So we are beginning in the garden at this moment and our entrance into chaos, recognizing that all God had done, including this tree that would be the source of so much chaos, was actually good and intentional. And God wanted it to be there. We sometimes want to enter into this story and take it from the perspective of, well, everything was good but that, and God put this terrible thing in the garden that was just going to mess up everything. But that is not what God said. God said everything was good. So the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and the tree of life, both trees in the garden, were both good. God wanted them there. They had purpose. And for us, what we need to try to disseminate from this is, well, what is that purpose? Everything that God created was good. And what we also find is is that God had given Adam and Eve everything they needed to live a full and satisfied life. And this is also important for us to understand. God had given them everything they needed for a full and satisfied life in the garden. He had created various trees of the garden in which they could eat of any of the trees of the garden that was good for food other than these two trees. And they had provided everything that they would need. And he said, this is all good. This reality is good. And so not only is it just the ability to survive and to live, you have completely healthy relationships 
between Adam and Eve. You don't have shame. You don't have guilt. You don't have anger. You don't have rage. We don't have many of the things that create chaos in our world today. We, we don't have racism. We don't have sexism. We don't have all those things that, that just drive just a needle into our hearts and make us wonder, what in the world is God doing in this world? Everything was good. Everything was working. There wasn't greed. Everything was shared. There was hope and joy and purpose and happiness. And this tree that you weren't supposed to eat from. So why is this tree here? What is the purpose of this tree? We read in Genesis chapter 2, beginning with verse 15, it says, The Lord God took the man, put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat it, you shall surely eat. Die. Now that's important. We're going to come back to that. If you eat it, you will surely die. Hello? In all of this, of everything God had created, of the birds of the air, the fish of the sea, the, the animals on the ground, the vegetation, the trees, everything, God only withheld one tree. Why? What was the purpose of this tree? Was it the knowledge of good and evil that was just terrible for us to have? Do we even fully comprehend what the knowledge of good and evil even is? That this tree, this one thing, don't eat the fruit, and you get to obey, and you walk with God, and everything is good, and as it should be, everything is healthy, everyone is wonderful, But if you eat of the tree, and you'll die, you cannot walk with God, you cannot obey God. Things are not, as we will find out very quickly, not all good anymore. We have all kinds of things that that enter into the human experience that weren't there before. So that leads us to this question, and I think this question is important because... It answers a little bit about what you believe about God, what you believe about God's work in the world, and what you think God's intention was from the beginning. So this is really a very pertinent question. It's a question I've already posed a couple of times. The question is this, so why did God place the tree in the garden? Here's what I like to do. I like to take just a few minutes for you to find somebody next to you and for you all to talk about this. Now, you may recognize, I may be setting you up a little bit, so I will, uh, if you want to share, you can, but I won't force you to do that. But I want you to process for the next few minutes this question, and I don't want you to process it in the sense of, well, there is no answer. I want you to process what is the answer. Think through this. So why did God place the tree in the garden? Take just a few minutes to do that, and then I'll call your attention back. You can move if you want. Talk to the people around you. All right, so does anyone want to share what they've come up with about why the tree is in the Garden of Eden at this point? Mark? My thought of it is it works back to the uh, the whole theory of free will. Um, That's what made us different from the animals is we had the the opportunity to make the decision that was bad. Yeah. Everything was perfect, everything was 
Choice, freedom of choice, the ability to choose God, to choose to obey, to choose to follow. Yes, yes. There was still work um, even then, but it was not near as hard as it was after. But yes, that's a very common, um, yes, understanding. That's very good. Don? Another one for choice. Daniel? Right. So the serpent is in the garden too. Serpent was not a good influence like some of our friends, right, that we've had through the years. We won't say who they are. Maybe they're here with us today. But, yeah, so intention. That, that it was, there's, there's intention and, and a reason to stay away. I saw, there's some other hands. Tracy? And so what would that point have been? When would they have been ready? Okay. 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 That's interesting. Interesting. All right. We'll come back to some of that. Yeah. Ken?
No, expand on that. That's interesting. But it's presumably it's still there, you know, in in this Garden of Eden. If this is a history book, then presumably it's still there. And this is, you know, it is a place that either uh, we would be restored to at some point or not. But that we don't know. That's a that's a good that's a good question. Uh, I don't know. I mean, presumably. Both. I mean, to, we're, we're both. We don't know. We don't know. And this is the challenge of the way Genesis 1 through 11 is written, because on one hand, we have these rivers that we recognize and we can place on a map, and then we have these indicators we cannot place on the map. So... Does that assume that the Garden of Eden has to be representatively defined by the same geographical boundaries that we define everything else on the globe today? Uh, that's a good question and one I'm not going to try to answer today. <laughs> but, you know, we, th- this is something that we do not know. And I guess you could, uh, you could say that, that it would be like any other tree. And the very act of eating the tree that it had been forgiven or had been forbidden was the act of receiving the knowledge of good and evil. Or you could assume that these two trees had some other supernatural properties in which they could still exist. I don't know the answer to that. I think that's a good one that would be good to know at some point. But I don't know the answer to that. All right. Good thoughts. What else? Some other hands. Okay. All right. Don, I'll come back to you, Daniel, in a minute. In Revelation, okay. Good, good. Daniel? Okay. All right. All right. I, I'm coming to that. Gene? Mm. 
Okay. It, you know, something to think about that would be very interesting and in, in, in that vein, being created in the image of God, what exactly was expected of them not knowing the difference between good and evil, yet being given a command not to do something, yet not having the knowledge of good versus evil. That is also part of the question of we don't exactly know what that means that they received as the knowledge of good and evil. We'll come back to that, but come to what Daniel said. So, so basically, in some form or fashion, I'll, you all have covered it brilliantly. There are three, for the most part, uh, categories of why the tree is there. I'm going to actually propose a, another one. But the first one is, is that God hoped we wouldn't disobey or fall. It falls into the category of, well, God put it there, and if we just hadn't eaten, if Adam and Eve hadn't eaten from it, everything would have been fine, we would have been there, and if God had created somebody else, maybe somebody else could have not eaten from the tree, and everything would have been okay. God really did just hope that we wouldn't do that. I think that is uh, not likely the case, in that sense, then, that would cause real question into God's judgment and God's omniscience. So the second one is, is that God planned for us to fall for whatever reason, but with the basic hope that he is then going to rescue us. And in this often come many different theories that could be very much the free choice or the choose to love. We have to come to a place of choosing in order for us to truly love. And God knew that how we would choose. And that ultimately at the end of the day, he would show us what love looked like uh, by having to rescue us. That's a second very broad, probably more uh, more readily found argument as to why the tree is there. The third one is, and some people do believe this, God just wanted us to suffer. The question, what about all the people who would be doomed to hell because they didn't choose Jesus? And there are those that believe God just wanted us to suffer, which then also draws in the question all the other things God has done and said about God's love for us. But in general, most arguments fall somewhere in those three. <laughs> now, there are others, and, and you could find some offshoots, and you could you know, tweak arguments and things like that. But my question to you then is if it is one of those three, or if it's not one of those three, what if the story of Genesis 1 through 11 isn't just history, but as some of you have already pointed out, is actually a story of God's intention for us? Now, I want you to follow with me. I want you to track with me. And again, if you leave today and you disagree with me, that's quite all right with me. But I want to share with you what I think as as I have (coughs) prayed about this and studied about this and read about this. And I have struggled with this since I've been a believer. Just like if you are a believer, you have probably struggled with this too. Where I come on this area of why is the tree there and why I think the tree was necessary to be there. And the tree was good to be there. What if the story is not just history, but a story of what God always wanted, his intention for us? And this is where I often come to, is that you cannot live a full and free life without the daily practice of restraint. I want you to let that sink in. God creates, all is good, puts man in the garden, says, hey, hey, this is your thing. You get to marvel at all of creation, eat anything you want. But these two trees, why put those two trees there? There was always a point in which God was saying, for you to live a full and free life, you must practice restraint on a daily basis. 
Now, should it be that way is not really what we're concerned with. Because when God, when we give him the place of sovereignty and Lord, we, we don't ask whether he should or should not have. It's just only what he did or did not do. Our belief in our culture today is that freedom looks like the lack of all restraint. So what we believe about freedom today, and this is what people misunderstand about the United States of America being a free nation, is that that means you can come and do whatever you want. Now, if you follow many of the political arguments or any of the debates, you know that this is the primary talking point of the 2020 election coming up. I will give you freedom to do whatever you want. Except in the areas that I don't really agree with. Right? You're saying, oh, that's the Democrats. It's also the Republicans. This is the way our nation works. The belief that freedom means you have no restraint, you're free to do whatever is fine until someone's freedom infringes on whose? Yours. Well, I didn't want to go to work today, so I've chosen to come into your house and take all your food. I'm free. Well, that's fine until they take your food and you come home and you're ready to eat and there's no food there, right? Well, no, that doesn't, I don't like that freedom. One of the things that I've discovered in life as I attempt to become more mature, not in age, thank you very much, I'm already on my way there, but in every other way, is the recognition, one of the the greatest indicators of a full life is a person's ability to restrain themselves. I want you to follow with me, because some of you may be thinking, this is really weird, (laughs) Mark's going off the deep end. And I want you to follow with me because I'm also going to share with you many scriptures that back up exactly what I'm saying. That there is this place in which God said, I put you in this perfect garden. And I've given you freedom to go where you want and do what you want. I've even made the work that I've asked you to do super easy. It's just like gonna, it's gonna grow itself. Whereas if you're like me and you try to grow something outside, the only thing I can grow is a weed. It's just gonna be easy for you guys. I mean, it's gonna be great. And you guys, like, you know, Adam and Eve, you're gonna have the best relationship ever. Like, you will never disagree. Right? Some of you are like, I don't even know how to imagine that. Right? I don't even know what that would look like. You all are going to have purpose and you are going to be full. You're going to wake up in the morning and every day is going to be like the best vacation you've ever been on. I mean, you're never going to be sad. I mean, awesome. All the things you think about heaven, right? But don't, just don't go eat off that tree. Now, either God is not loving by putting it in there. Like he said, look, hey, watch this. I'm going to put this tree over here and I'm going to mess with them. Now, that's some people's interpretation in some roundabout way of what God did with the garden. And whenever we make the tree of the, uh, of the knowledge of good and evil the villain of the story, that's really what we're saying. We're saying God intentionally wanted to mess us up. But instead, what if God is simply saying, you, you will decay in this idyllic, perfect place 
where everything is just great and you can never do anything wrong, you will decay unless you must practice restraint for something. Well, that's where we come to what what exactly was the knowledge of good and evil. Like, you know, all they know is God said don't do it. But do they really have the concept at this point of right and wrong? And we really should listen to what God says. Do they even have that? That's where we don't really even know that. Why did they eat it? Well, the serpent came up and said, that's really good fruit. You know, you should try it out. And and we'll, we'll get to that in a minute. Yeah, we would have been good. So you all are just just about 6,000 or 6 million, however you interpret it, years born too late, right? Real quick, I would add to that, though, that if, you, if you're paying attention, that's the first time they're facing something that contradicted God. Because mm-hmm. the serpent said, God already said, if you eat this, you will die. Right. The serpent said, you won't surely die. Right. That's the first time they're facing contradiction. And so it puts them at a crisis there. Yeah. So ideally, they would have still trusted God. Yeah. And still just, it wouldn't have been a thing. Mm-hmm. But they're faced with a problem to deal with it. Yeah, yeah. I agree. I think they're introducing doubt. Right. That is, I think, one of the keys. That God is withholding from you. So so that leads us to the question. Do boundaries create more freedom or less freedom? It depends on whether you want the boundaries or not, right? So, So it's easy in this regard. It's hard for us as adults to look at our own lives because we really do want unlimited number of choices to do whatever we want to do. And yeah, we'll take the consequences, kind of, but we really want that. But if you're a parent and you're looking at your children, are you providing more freedom or less freedom by introducing boundaries to your children? Don't ask the children because they'll say less boundaries, right? Mm. So there's something better than what you think your freedom should offer you. And I'm putting boundaries because you won't receive that better unless you stay within these boundaries. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. See, there, culture says remove the boundaries, increase freedom. When was the last time you looked at your phone at the screen time limit of the amount of time you spent on your device and you went, wow, I thought it was more than that. When was the last time you thought that? Be honest. If you got an iPhone, it pops up once a week. This is how much time you spent on your phone. I bet no one has ever gone, I thought it was more than that. But likely you said, really? That's not good. <laughs> I didn't realize I was spending so much time on my phone. You know, it's interesting we find child psychologists coming out of the woodwork saying the more time we allow our kids to be on screens, the more detrimental it is to their freedom, their development, who they can become, and increasingly their opportunities in life. And yet when we create boundaries, which no child likes, if you don't believe me and you don't have a child, just 
give an electronic device to a child for a few minutes and then go and take it away. And you'll see how they feel about those boundaries. Not good. Not good. Some of the adults in here would respond even more violently, right? So boundaries, do they create more freedom or less freedom? Now, you can certainly look at some unrealistic boundaries set by people in the world that absolutely does restrict and take away freedom. You can absolutely do that. We can look at the way, you know, I mean, look at slavery. I mean, slavery is, the, is a prime example of boundaries that re- <coughs> remove freedom. I'm not suggesting that increasing numbers of boundaries are the answer to life's problems. What I'm saying is the absence of boundaries absolutely is not the answer to God's problem. And for God, he never intended us to live without boundaries. Correct. Individually. Absolutely. And so I think there's a difference in Yes, absolutely. Boundaries are necessary for a full and healthy life. When we go through and we look at Scripture, we find this time and time again. One of the places that we see this specifically is in the area of alcohol. I grew up in a Southern Baptist church. In the Southern Baptist church, you did not drink alcohol. In fact, you had to sign a thing that you would not drink when I went to seminary. I had to sign a petition that said, I will not drink alcohol while I'm in seminary. And many churches would say, if you come in and pastor our church, you cannot drink alcohol. But Scripture never forbids the drinking of alcohol. Not only does it not forbid the drinking of alcohol, it talks about people like Jesus drinking alcohol all the time. Right, first miracle, water into wine. Yeah, it was great juice. (laughs) Spoken like a true Southern Baptist right there. True Southern Baptist right there. Now, Scripture does say, but don't get drunk. It's a boundary. Boundary. Now, I will tell you that uh, I do drink alcohol. I'll also tell you that never in my life, and this is not a false claim, never in my life have I ever been drunk. So for me, I don't need the boundary that says don't drink alcohol. I can have a drink and stop. And I do all the time. I mean, that didn't come out right. I mean, I stop all the time, right? Woo, we know where this sermon was planned, right? <laughs> all right, all right. Write it back in, write it back in. We're running out of time. We're not going to get to the second sermon today. I'll tell you that. However, however, if I couldn't stop after one drink, then I need boundaries to keep me healthy. Because then we see this problem all the time. Kids start drinking at a party, jump in a car, they're no longer alive. You know, you need boundaries. Alcoholics, drug addicts who begin to escape life because they can't deal with life. And what they want is the absolute freedom. This is that enablement problem that those of you that have loved ones that are addicts, you struggle with because they want you to show them love by giving them absolute freedom. And what you know they need are boundaries. They are not free as long as they have to have another drink. Now, some of you are thinking, man, I'm glad that's not me. But yet you watch Netflix all the time, right? They're guilty, guilty. <laughs> and willing to admit it. 
Can we turn it off? It's a good question. Because you see, boundaries create opportunities. They help us prioritize. They help us to carve out the space in our lives to do the things that are most important. The lack of boundaries means we just go and do whatever. And we lose perspective and we lose priority and we lose the ability to restrain ourselves. I'll tell you, as an adult, as I look out at people who are trying to make it in life, there is an indicator that more than any other indicator I have found that will demonstrate a full and happy life is not their income level. It is their ability to restrain themselves. You carve out the time for the things that need to be carved out. You don't sleep in till 10 or 11 o'clock every day. You don't go to bed whenever you want after binge watching six episodes of a show that you would never watch if you were really in your right mind and fully awake. They go to class and they do their homework. They get their grades and when their friends say, hey, we're all going to go over and do this thing. I can't, I got to study. The restraint is so important for us to recognize the full potential of what God has created us that he even put it in the garden. It was good. Everything was good. Even the prohibition not to eat from the tree and the tree itself was good. And yet what he is saying is you cannot fully experience what I've created you for without developing the ability to restrain yourself. That's right. So when we go back and we look throughout Scripture, where do I see this? Do we see this in any other places in Scripture? And we see this with the law. What is the law except ten very specific boundaries in which to restrain ourselves whenever what we want is absolute freedom? That's what the law is. Proverbs 29.18 says, Where there is no prophetic vision... The people cast off restraint. But blessed is he who keeps the law or or maintains restraint. When we go and we look at what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 20, this is one of the most crucial things for us who want absolute freedom to understand. Even Jesus himself did not seek absolute freedom as he walked on this earth. And Jesus called to him and he said, you know, the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant. How do you serve others except to restrain yourself? I have to re- think about this. Service requires restraint. Because if I'm going to serve you, then who am I not serving? myself. I have to restrain myself from what I would choose all on my own to do just for me so I can serve you. That is no better indicated by anyone here in our church except for those who are in with the toddlers right now. They are restraining themselves and maybe even your toddlers, but they'll be safe. They'll be okay. In order to serve others, whether it be in the church or outside of the church, I have to restrain the portion of me that says, but I want to be served. And you know that that's deep within every one of us. We want that. And Jesus 
But Jesus said, it shall not be so among you. Whoever be great among you must be your servant. Whoever would be first among you must be your slave. And even as a son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Restrain himself. In Philippians chapter 2, verse 5, talking about Jesus coming in the flesh, period, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped. Why? He was restraining himself, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant that requires restraint, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself, which is another way of saying restrained himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. We see this throughout the scriptures, that there is a godly place for restraint. And what he's asking Adam and Eve to do is restrain themselves from that tree. And have anything else you want and a full life, but only when you practice restraint. And then what do we have when sin enters into the world? We have all lack of restraint. We're going to talk about Cain and Abel. What happens with Cain and Abel? As chaos enters into the world, restraint disappears. And Cain kills Abel. We find that. Restraint is so crucial in all of these things. Service and leadership. Those of you who are in leadership have to restrain yourself, which means to be prepared for whatever we do here. You have to set aside the time that you could have done something else. For some of you, that would have been to sleep. Or it would have been another Netflix episode. Or it would have been video games. You could have spent your time on, but to lead, you restrain yourself. You discipline yourself because the core root of restraint is discipline. I want to be careful here because discipline has been used by pastors for negative reasons since the beginning of the church. Let me tell you what you need to do that benefits me. This is why we don't like to talk about discipline in the church because it's been so misused. And yet we cannot talk about God without talking about discipline. Ask yourself this. Why do we have to read Scripture Learn it and memorize it. Why didn't God just implant it in us like he implanted in our DNA? Listen, when you're born, you know, you know how to nurse like that. Why didn't he give us his word like that? Why does he make us go read it and study it? And then we, how come we can forget it? It requires discipline. I told you one of the key factors I see in people who are successful today is, is restraint. And it really does fall into the area of discipline. If you are not disciplined, you will not have a full and whole life. I was just telling you off the bat. You go and play, don't do your homework. Limit your opportunities. Sit and watch TV all day, I don't read scripture. Limits your opportunities. God talks about it like this. You need to restrain yourself because when I speak to you, I speak in a still, small voice that can be drowned out in a moment. You have to restrain yourself. You have to discipline yourself. Paul talks about it like this. I'm preaching the gospel to everybody, 
but I train every day. I beat myself black and blue because I don't want to preach this and miss it myself. I have to discipline myself. Parents, our favorite verse in Scripture, spare the rod. Say it with me. You all know it. You didn't spare the rod, did you? Right? (laughs) Discipline. I want to be careful that we don't go too far in this because we can very easily go in the area of discipline and leave God behind. Like now it's just personal disciplines, whatever I want those to be. That doesn't lead to any more fullness than the lack of discipline. What God is saying is, if you will discipline yourselves in the way in which I am leading you, this is getting to where Scott's comment was, and then you lead into the way he has created us to be, that's where fullness of life comes. But what we find for Adam and Eve is that they are not able to restrain themselves. Financial management is another area of your life. My friends post that I grew up with post on Facebook their kids' Christmas, and I've only got one kid in here, so I can say this. He'll forget about it. He's not even listening, so. (laughs) He is listening. They post where they get their kids for Christmas, and, you know, if my kids saw what their kids got, they'd be really upset with me. Deidre and I made a decision a few years ago. We're going to pay cash for Christmas. That means we have to restrain ourselves. Now, some are saying, I want my kids to know I love them. And so I'm going to go buy them all that they want. They put it on a credit card. Because what is a credit card? A credit card is without boundary. Here, you don't have enough to pay for this. But guess what? Now you do. We decided, hey, we're going we're gonna to withhold. We're going to pay cash for Christmas. And guess what? When we pack up our Christmas decorations, Christmas is over. But for the average American, Christmas is not over until June. Because they're still paying off their credit cards. If then. Same with cars. Our kids drive cars that are 20 years old. That does two things for them. Number one, that keeps us happy. Because we're not paying for car payments for two kids. And my friends go buy new cars for their kids. And I think, you're crazy. Now, some of you may have done that. And I'm not trying to step on your toes. But you're crazy. All right? The second thing that does is it teaches them boundaries. And if I want a better car, guess what? I've got to discipline myself to go get that car because mom and dad aren't going to give it to me. You see, that's what parenting is. That is us creating healthy boundaries so they learn to create healthy boundaries because they can go out and experience the world in its fullness when they have learned to restrain themselves. But if you don't have restraint, you miss those opportunities. Restraint is so crucial. And the obeying is him saying, I'm telling you this. Don't do it. Deidre and I had a conversation the other day. It was very interesting. And we're going to just jump ahead because we're not going to make it to the rest of this chapter. But talking about the relationship between men and women are so, so tentative and broken. Husbands and wives. The idea that men lord over women and the scriptures have been used to justify it. And the curse for men and women was not God cursing that she should live under the foot of her husband, but that with the lack of boundaries, you all will be at odds and your husbands will lord over you. This is not what God wanted. This is the result of sin. This is the result of sin. 
So I really wanted to get farther I don't, to wrap up because I'm not really at a good wrap-upable point, but we need to wrap up. Okay, well, you, pr- you promise you come back next week, right? Because I'm leaving you with an incomplete thought. And some of you who are spiritual would say, well, just preach on, brother! But the rest of you won't come back. Um, so I want you to come back. And... Uh, Yeah, I'm not going to go. I'm not going to go into. So we didn't even make it into Genesis three today. How's that? We didn't even make it to Genesis three, on Genesis three. But we <coughs> we will next week. Here's what I would leave you with: skip Genesis three uh, passage, Chad, and go to the next slide. Unrestrained appetites lead to tyranny, not more freedom. So that debt. What does Scripture say about that? The debtor is slave to the lender. But I had the freedom to go get that new thing. You did, and you enslaved yourself in the process. But had you restrained yourself, maybe you still shouldn't have gotten it. I don't want to divorce this concept of discipline and obedience because we can have discipline and use that discipline for all the wrong things. Some of the greatest tyrants in the history of the world were incredibly disciplined. The question is, how do you restrain yourself? This is also not a vow of poverty. It is not the vow that I will not enjoy anything. I will just sit here and suffer restraining myself. That is also not what Scripture says. It is a place of saying, God has set principles and place in which I live a full, complete life. But if I'm going to experience that, I have to restrain myself. That means I have to stop listening to my own head and listen for that still, quiet voice. Sometimes whenever Sunday morning comes and you wake up in the morning and you're thinking, do I go to church or do I stay in bed? Well, we know that you, what choice you made today. Do you restrain yourself and say, no, I have a greater purpose for this life? I want you to chew on this for this next week. Some of the freedoms that some of us are grabbing for and we want to exist and live in and we want to fully experience are not healthy. They're leading to tyranny. They're not leading to freedom. So this is where I... Today, place my understanding of why the tree was in the garden was that God created us with the need to exercise discipline to know, follow, and love Him. We experience that now in our marriages, in our relationships with our children, in our relationships with our friends, with our parents, in our relationships within our faith community. And yet it is still a struggle for us because we are still living what we will read in the, through the rest of Genesis chapter 3. We are still struggling with the reality that there are still serpents whispering things in our ears, telling us what you really want are no boundaries in your life. We still struggle with that. And if I had made it to the end, I would have also said, you know what? There is still a tree of the knowledge of good and evil in your life today. It may not be the same one. But God is still planting those trees within us to say, Will 
you intentionally choose to obey and follow me. Because if you do that, it will require restraint. All right. I'm going to pray with you. This is an incomplete story. Because this story doesn't end in condemnation. This story ends in hope. But for today, for today we're going to close here. Father, God, I pray that these words that I have spoken are true. I believe we see them throughout Scripture. We see them throughout your calling. We see them throughout your work in the world. And so, Father, I pray that as we leave this place, you will give us such great discernment and wisdom to know what are those things that lead to freedom and what are those things that lead to tyranny. Father, I thank you that what you created was good. And I don't fully understand why you created (coughs) the way you did, but it is not my place to understand why, just to trust you. Pray for those that are in this room and they know exactly what I've been saying. They feel it. They have been working to, to exercise discipline within their life, and yet they feel that they are just tossed to and fro by every wind that blows in life. And God, you want them to be more intentional. I pray for those that are going to leave today and they're going to struggle through this and say, you know what, I just, I just need to try harder. And the answer isn't just that we need to try harder. The answer is we just need to trust you more to follow in the steps in which you lead us. God, I thank you for your son who came as a demonstration of all of this. He came not to be served, but to serve. He came to demonstrate humility. He came to demonstrate what it means to put someone else in front of himself. Father, I pray that we would learn that lesson, that not only would we be thankful for it, but we would mirror it. Father, I thank you for the grace in which you show, not just in this story, (coughs) but the grace that you will show through our whole story. So as we leave this place, let us leave recognizing that the boundaries you are putting in place around us are good. They are healthy. And I pray for all those boundaries that have been placed on us that are not good and are not healthy. You will help us to see and give us the strength to break those yokes. Father, help us to live fully today in the ways in which you have called us. Give us the strength, the self-control to be able to do that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.